want you to take your Bibles with me this morning and open them again to Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. And we will begin to uh, make our way through the introduction of this letter. Our sermon this morning is entitled, Jesus, the Uniquely Qualified Christ. Christ is the word that we use, uh, Christos in the Greek language that referred to the anointed one, the Messiah. And so when you say Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. Uh, Rather, it is a title. And that title describes his offices of prophet, priest, and king, making him God's anointed one. Every time you say Christ, that's what you're referring to, is Jesus' office as Christ. And so this morning, as we look at these verses together, we are going to see what uniquely qualifies Jesus to be the Christ. Part of his qualifications and his credentials as such. As we saw last week, our author is writing to a band of believers who came out of Judaism into Christianity. They came from practicing Judaism into Christianity. And as this author opens his letter, he has one main intent. It is to reintroduce these saints to Jesus. He's not introducing them to Jesus. They've already heard about Jesus. They've already come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is not their introduction into the faith. Rather, it's a reintroduction. It's a refresher on Jesus. So you saw a couple of weeks ago from chapter 5, they've been established in the faith for some time, and yet they need to hear it again. It's time to hear the old, old story. They need to be refreshed as they contemplate the excellencies of Jesus, the one in whom they place their faith. They need to see how it is that Jesus is the sure and steady anchor for their souls, and why it is that Jesus is better than anything that the old covenant could offer. And so as we saw last week, he opens this letter by stating that God is a talker. God is a talker. And we see him speaking in the beginning of Hebrews. God, after having spoken previously piecemeal through human mouthpieces, now is spoken to us finally and completely in his son. His son is the climax. He is the definitive word of God. Certainly there was continuity in that God the Father was always speaking, and yet now he has a different mode, he has a different mouthpiece, and Jesus is the conclusive revelation of God. And so last week we asserted this, that Jesus is God's best and final word. And that was in verses 1 and the first half of verse 2. This week now the author is going to not merely assert that Jesus is God's best and final word, but he's going to demonstrate why he's qualified to do that. Why is it that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be God's final word? He's incomparable. He's the supreme object of our worship. He is the hope of glory. And today we're going to reflect on seven qualifications that the Son possesses. Seven qualifications that make the Son unique, that qualify him to be God's greatest spokesperson. Now today we have an interesting predicament that's happened with the onset of the internet age. See, it used to be if you had something to say and you wanted to publish it, you'd actually find a publisher that was willing to do that. 
Right? And so to some degree, that at least limited the works that were being published to uh, maybe some degree of things that would be meaningful or people that actually had a, maybe a right to speak to a matter. If you take your new book idea, something that you think is great, to a publisher and they say, you know what, that's, that's okay, we're going to take a pass. What you're saying isn't really that great. It's not a helpful contribution. You're not qualified. There's already a bunch of books on that topic. But in the rise of the internet age, if you have a connection to the internet, you can write about anything that you want. You can write about topics that you really haven't studied. Maybe you've read a book or two on. Things that you've never pondered deeply. People do it all the time. They're suddenly experts on just about everything under the sun. But to truly speak in behalf of someone else, you are to be qualified. There's a credential that's needed. The people that we listen to most are people that maybe have devoted their life to a field. I was on a conference call a couple of weeks ago, and it's not that degrees matter, but I was listening to someone present information, and they were uh, described uh, their first degree, their second degree, their PhD, and then the 30 years practicing in that narrow specific field. When that person speaks to an issue, I'm, I'm willing to listen because I understand you've, you've actually devoted yourself time and attention to understanding this issue thoroughly. And so now when you speak to it, it's, it's different than when I talk about it with my friends. When Jesus came to speak on behalf of God, he had every credential necessary to be God's final word. And what the author is doing here is he's, he's saying, I'm asserting that Jesus is God's best and final word, and I'm going to show you all the credentials as to why he's qualified for this. I'll state up front, Jesus didn't need any credentials to validate him. As soon as the father said, it's my son, that's all that he needed intrinsically because he's God and his nature and connection with the Father, he didn't need any validation. But for our benefit, we get to see all of these credentials. And so I want to read our passage before us this morning, beginning in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here we find seven credentials of Jesus, God's greatest spokesperson. And the logic of this sermon is picking up in verse 2b with the word whom. The word whom is, is indicating that now the author is going to begin to give you identifying characteristics of this son that he has spoken about in the first part of verse 2. Very first point is that Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. The son is the rightful heir of all things. Now children, when you hear the word heir, I'm not talking about the kind of air that you breathe in. That's not the kind of air that we're talking about. 
We're talking about an heir, H-E-I-R, which is the one who inherits the family estate. You're part of a family that has a degree of wealth. There were business interests. If there were property and possessions, then at death, those would pass on to whoever had the right to the inheritance. And so today we have wills, and we put in our wills uh, our desire for who gets our stuff when we pass from this life to the next. All the way back in the Old Testament, God had designed that the firstborn in the family would receive a double portion. So how that works is if there were two sons, the first son would get two-thirds and the second son would get one-third. All right, if there were three boys, the first one would get half and the other two would each get 25%. Whatever it was, it was always a double portion that came to the firstborn. The firstborn had the legal claim to the estate. And so God had made a covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament, a promise. Yeah, sorry, it doesn't, doesn't work that way anymore generally for most of you firstborns. I see a couple of smiles going on around here in the room. Uh, that was in the Old Testament. But Abram said in Genesis 15, uh, Behold, you've given me no offspring, Lord, is the implication. A member of my household will be my heir. What's he saying? Well, his wife Sarah was barren. She hadn't given birth. And so Abraham went and found another woman by which he could have a child that he would appoint as the heir of his family. And what did God say about that? Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram and said, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son, shall be your heir. God said, I promised you that you would have an offspring that would have an inheritance through your wife, Sarah. You went around that. And so your first child in the fatherly line, the paternal line, would have normally had the inheritance rights of the estate. And yet God says, it's actually going to come by promise to Isaac. He's the son whom I promised you. And so the firstborn has rights that are granted to him. Rights that he didn't uh, have apart from that granting. In Psalm 89, 27, we read, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's God speaking prophetically about making his firstborn above all. In fact, Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So sometimes people hear the firstborn of all creation and they think, okay, so uh, that must mean that Jesus was the first created creature. He was uh, the first one to be born in all of creation. But firstborn has nothing to do with chronology. It's not even speaking of existence. Rather, it's specifically talking about the legal rights of the inheritance and the legal rights of authority. The idea is this, for Jesus to be the one who's appointed the heir of all things, it means that God has designated him to have the legal rights of ownership of all things. It would be impressive if you were the heir to a large estate. Remember how mind-boggling it was when I was in college and we were looking at businesses and I was taking different classes and looking at how um, Sam Walton, who began Sam's Club and Walmart, had his inheritance divided among multiple children, and those multiple children were among the 10 wealthiest people in the world. As the inheritance was divided up, that was a, it's a mind-boggling amount of an inheritance. 
And even so, you're talking about part ownership in one organization. Jesus here is, is the heir, the one who will receive an inheritance, not of one corporation, not of one nation, not of one country, but of all things. This means that he has the first place. He has preeminence. He has authority. He has the rights to ownership. And in fact, what it means is that creation exists for him. Right at the end of Colossians 1.16, it says all things were created through him and for him. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. See, creation exists for Jesus as his inheritance. It's all for him. You think about how this immediately confronts any vestige of human pride. Any sense of personal entitlement. You exist for Christ. You exist for his glory. You exist to be his inheritance. For his enjoyment. For his reputation. This is the the absolute polar opposite of a me-first mindset, the idea that I'm entitled to anything at all. As soon as you begin to think that you have the right to demand that your boss treats you a certain way and your spouse treats you a certain way and your children treat you a certain way and your parents treat you a certain way and society treats you a certain way, certain things that you deserve and don't deserve, As soon as you insist that people would conform to your plan and your ideals for your agenda, for your goal, for your ambitions and the things that you want to achieve and aspire to in your life, you need to make sure that it's under submission to this principle. Jesus is appointed the heir of all things. See, he alone is the worthy one. He's not merely an appendage or an addition to an otherwise self-oriented life. He is before all things. And if you are in Christ, you don't just merely exist in a generic sense as his inheritance, but you're actually part of the people that he purchased with his own blood. You belong to him in a specific and a unique way. And then if you belong to him, get this. Apostle Paul writes to the church of Rome in chapter 8, and he says that if you are children of God, then you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus is the rightful heir of all things. And through your union with him, being connected to him by faith, he and you and you and him, you actually share in his glory and will one day share in his inheritance. He is the firstborn and you're the little sibling. How cool is that? So the writer of Hebrews is saying that this son in whom God has spoken is preeminent. And everything in history that has happened previously is all culminating ultimately to belong to him. Why do all things belong to him? Well, it's because he made all things. This is the second credential of the son. Everything is his because he made it. He says through whom also he created the world. Not only did he appoint him as the heir, but also he created through him. He's talking still about the Son, so that the He in the verse is God the Father, the whom is the Son. So through Jesus also, God the Father created the world. And so we see here the roles in creation are distinct. We see the Father creating not by Himself, but in combination with 
the Son. And so now not only was the world made for Him, but it was made by Him. That's why He gets to inherit all of it, because He was the owner. I was thinking back to the clothing line that became popular in the 90s, uh, middle school-ish for me, so you know, you're kind of into brands at that point. And uh, it was the FUBU brand, F-U-B-U, for us, by us, right? The idea here is that God is saying creation was made for us and, and now it exists, excuse me, made by us and now it exists for us. The reason why he's the rightful heir is because he was the creator. And when you read that he created the world in your text, it's not cosmos, the usual word for world. It's the idea of the entire universe. It's the totality of everything that exists everywhere. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, that is Jesus, and without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. You're saying Jesus was not created. That would be a heresy. Jesus created. And there was nothing and no one that existed before him. And there was nothing that existed after him that existed without him making it. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, the things that you can see, and invisible, everything that you can't. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things for him. My friends, not just the earth, but the entire universe. Time was created by him. Space was created by him. Matter exists because of him. When he created, he created ex nihilo. That means he created out of nothing. As the late Dr. Sproul said in the way that only he could, nothing can create itself. Nothing can do nothing. If anything exists now, and this is elementary, then there never could have been a time when there was nothing Because the most fundamental maxim of all reason and all science and all philosophy is the maximum that out of nothing, nothing comes. It goes on to say, if there was ever a time when there was nothing, the only thing there could possibly be now couldn't possibly be now. Because the only thing that there would be is nothing and nothing is not something, not even a little something, not even a microscopic something. Not even a subatomic something. It is nothing. And if there was ever a time when there was nothing, there would be nothing now. So there always had to be something. Something that had the very power of being within itself or nothing could possibly be. My friends, all things were created through him and out of nothing he created. I mean, I've been around some some pretty impressive people when it comes to inventions. I've seen some of the things that you all can do with your hands and the things that you come up with in creativity. But at the best, all you're doing is refining something that already exists. You're transforming, you're treating, you're harnessing, you're shaping or assembling or harvesting or designing or building or splitting. But no inventor actually creates the materials for their invention. They're just bringing together elements that already exist in a new way. Everything that any human has ever made was derived. 
It was already made from something that already was made, and he made it all before anything ever was. You existed because God made you, and because he made you, he has the rightful claim to you and to everything else on the earth. Regardless of what you think, you belong to him, and so does everything else. In fact, God says that creation was made for us and by us. It's his prerogative. In fact, when, when Paul was wrestling with the challenge that comes up in the human heart, in submission to God's sovereign purposes, in saving some and condemning others, Paul quotes the prophet Jeremiah and he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will the molded say to its molder? What's the clay going to say to the potter? Why have you made me like this? What were you thinking? No, he goes on and says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The idea is that every element of creation came into being through Christ. Therefore, he owns it all. He is supreme over it. And he has a right to all of it. It's his. It's the fool who says in his heart there is no God. It's the fool in his heart who says there is no God because who have you brought yourselves into existence? Today, the creation, of course, worships against the creator and worships the creature, worships that which is created. All around us is the worship of the creation and it's astounding, particularly the idea of personal autonomy. I'm my own authority. I get to define reality as I see it. I get to define my rights. I get to define what is right and what is wrong. My friends, you don't get to define any of those things. Christ, the firstborn of all creation, defines those. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. Jesus came and he spoke a better word because unlike the prophets, he's the rightful heir of all things. It's because he created all things. And next, he is the perfect explanation of God. Not only is he the rightful heir and the wonderful creator, but he is the perfect explanation of God. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Two different ways of saying the same thing. The point is this, Jesus explains God to us. Jesus makes God known to us. First, he is the radiance. Literally, he's the effulgence of God's glory. Either he's reflecting back the glory or else it's radiating from him. The word could mean either here. Best way to illustrate this is to consider seeing the light that comes from the sun. Okay, when you try to look in the general upward direction on a bright and sunny day, which we had a few of those the past couple of weeks. It was very nice. You can't do it this afternoon, but you were able to do it this past week. When you look up into the light, it is indistinguishable, the actual sun itself and the light that comes from the sun. Of course, they are distinguished, and yet when you look at them, all you see is brilliance. The idea is that when Jesus comes, he's not the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity. And yet when he comes in his brilliance to reveal God, all you see is the radiance. You can't distinguish between the light of the sun and the sun itself when you're looking at it. In fact, they are so closely associated that the sun reveals his Father in the way that he's called the exact imprint. He's the exact imprint. 
You know, today, if, if you need to uh, indicate that you're actually the one authorizing a document, what do you have to do? You have to sign it, and you have to get it notarized if you really, uh, really mean it or if it's something very important. And uh, notarizing is kind of a pain during COVID, if you've tried to do that, as a side note. Um, did not seem like a hard task, but it's a multi-day process to get uh, something notarized. But in the first century, rather than have a signature, uh, what they had was a signet ring. And so you'd put the wax seal, I'm sure you've heard of it before, and then you would seal up that document and you'd press your ring into it, and that would leave an imprint. It's the same idea of, of minting that was used to mint a coin where they would all look the same as they were pressed into a mold. That's what's being used here. Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact representation of the Father. How is Jesus the exact representation of God? Well, he's God. The only way that you could be the exact representation of God is if you were God himself. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the reason why Jesus comes and he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature is because the Father and the Son are one. So when the Son comes, he's the unfiltered and perfect representation of his Father. People come up with all kinds of personal ideas and personal views regarding God. I would say just stop doing that. I meet someone, they say, you know, I'm, I'm really a red letter Christian. I, I prefer the words of Jesus, the red letters. Those are the ones that I'm really into. Really, wait, what, what do you do when Jesus says in John 10, 30, that he and the father are one? Jesus just said all the black letters are red letters too. Or people will separate the Jesus of the New Testament as, as some kind of humanitarian who they identify with. He cared for the outcasts and he elevated the impoverished and he helped the downtrodden. And, and therefore they align with a social agenda that they view Jesus as having. I want to separate the Jesus of the New Testament from the God of the Old Testament who told his people to go into Canaan and purge the land, men, women, and children, and slaughter them to cleanse and purify the land and expunge it of idolatry. They want to separate the parts and pieces they like about Jesus from this scary God of wrath in the Old Testament. My friends, you don't get your own version of Jesus. You don't get to separate him from the God of the Old Testament. Jesus and the Father are one. Same God. He's not a God. He's not a lesser God. He's not a secondary member of the Trinity in the sense that he's somehow derived from the Father and not existing as God himself. No, he's the exact representation of God because he is God. And so Jesus is God's greatest spokesperson because he's the rightful heir. He's the wonderful creator. He's the perfect explanation of God because he's God himself. Not only that, but right now he is the powerful sustainer of all things. Jesus is the powerful sustainer of all things. The author says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You've probably seen the pictures of the Titan God Atlas and he has the globe on his shoulders and he's holding up the world and the weight of the world on his shoulders. We use that expression. We'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so really just seems to have the weight of the world on their shoulders. 
And what does that even mean? There's no way you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. But here it says that he sustains and upholds the universe by the word of his power. My friends, the idea here is is not merely that he's just kind of keeping things propped up in balance, but rather he's intimately involved, superintending every moment. This is the intimate involvement of Jesus as the ultimate cause behind every activity that takes place. Right now, as we speak, he maintains the law of gravity and the law of thermodynamics. He's the one that caused the water to boil at 212 degrees this morning and to freeze at 32. He maintains the hydrological cycle. He keeps the earth orbiting the sun at exactly the right distance. He causes the tides of the oceans to rise and fall. He causes seeds to reproduce and the animals. He's formed mountains and valleys. And the reason why we are not afraid of the earth being destroyed before Christ comes back is because he is currently sustaining everything. I want you to think about this power for just a minute. Think if we didn't have these steel supports and we had to try and hold up the ceiling of this building for just one day. I don't think we could do it. I was thinking of the futility if you go to the, the little science museums and they have the, the crank and as you crank it, you get the light bulb to light up. It's very gratifying for about 60 seconds and then you're tired so you stop. Maybe they have one with a bike. Hey, let's see how long we could power our own electricity for before we wear out. And you can't sustain anything for very long. And even that, you're still not actually the one sustaining it, right? We have people talk about having a sustainable farm. You're not the one ultimately sustaining it. You don't sustain yourself. All of that is borrowed by Christ. No one has the ability to sustain themselves, whether they recognize it or not. And you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I couldn't even sustain truly in and of myself what I need for one day. How do you sustain everything in the universe? He says, oh, that? I just do that by my powerful word. I just speak it, I just say it, and it it happens. I mean, the power is remarkable. And the best rendering there isn't actually the word of his power, but it's his powerful word. It's the idea that all he has to do is speak, and that is enough. He simply can say it, and it's sustained. All of creation, even to rebel against the glory of God in Jesus Christ, is borrowing upon his sustaining mercy to rebel against him. Everyone that ever speaks against Christ is, is breathing in air through lungs that he's causing to function. And so Jesus is, in fact, the best spokesperson for God. He's a powerful sustainer of all things. And the writer moves now from these first four qualifications that are really connected to Jesus speaking as the prophet, as the revealer of God. Everything in that package is his revelation as God because he is God. Now he's going to begin to move on our fifth credential into the priestly work of Christ. See, Jesus is not only all of these glorious, wonderful, self-existent attributes, but he is the atoning sacrifice for sins. He's the atoning sacrifice for sins. The last part of verse 3 says, after making purification for 
sins. This is a short statement. It's just four little words in the original. It's just slipped in there. It's actually modifying the next thought that's coming, which is the main one. But it's speaking of a completed work here of purification. Purification for our sins. Say, why is it that purification for sin is needed? Well, it's because sin is defiling. So when you sin, it corrupts you. It corrupts the image of God in you. It taints you, it it causes you to be unclean, and there's nothing that you can do to get rid of sin on your own. Think back to the children's book when the the cat in the hat comes back and eats the cake in the tub and the tub turns pink. And Sally and me are getting a little concerned because we had a job and mom's going to come back and what happens? Well, they all try and find a way to expunge that pink stain and the more they try to get it to go away, what happens? The worse it gets. They're unable, actually. The, the cat who caused the problem in the story is ultimately unable to even solve removing the stain. See, when you're defiled by sin, you have a blemish that can't be erased. You can't go back in the past and say, I'm going to travel back in time and, and redo that and not commit that defiling sin. In fact, your deeds oftentimes are shameful and you know they're shameful and because God is holy and because he is pure, because he cannot even look upon sin, then you are stuck. And the scriptures teach that you cannot cleanse yourself. Children, it's as if you've played outside on a muddy day and you've gotten your clothes totally covered in mud. And you come to the door to get in the house and mom says, you can't come in the house with dirty clothes on. You say, oh, I'll just take my clothes off. She goes, that's not an option either. And so now you're stuck. You're outside of the house wearing dirty clothes and you can't get in. And you can't take your clothes off. What do you do? Prophet Zechariah spoke about a priest named Joshua who had dirty clothes. Joshua was standing before an angel clothed with filthy garments, much in the same way. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. See, the picture in scripture is that you are covered in defiled clothing, which is due to your sin. And Christ comes and he gives you his clothes. He cleanses you by purifying you and giving you his righteous robes. He brings his clothes and he gives them to you. And he did this through his work on the cross. See, the cross, Jesus paid for sin and he took away their reproach and he made purification for sin. This is going to be a theme of this author. He loves this theme. In fact, we're going to learn more about the priestly ministry of Christ than I ever knew or you ever knew because we're going to see it over and over and over and over throughout this letter to the Hebrews. But Jesus made purification. It was a completed work for sins. And so as you read that verse, you have to immediately ask yourself, whose sins did Jesus pay for? Whose sins did he make pure? Either he died for the sins of all men or the sins of some men or some sins of all men. In fact, we know that the death of Christ on the cross could not have paid for all of the sins of every individual because 
He actually absorbed the penalty of God and produced propitiation, God's pleasure for his people, removing all of their wrath. The Bible teaches that Christ didn't purify the sins of every person. He purified the sins of his people. Isaiah 53 says that he was stricken for the transgressions and then he said of my people. Matthew 121, Mary shall bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save everyone from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. And friends, when Jesus made purification, it was a complete work. It was all of the sin purified for some. Anyone who trusts in the Son has all of their sins paid for. 100%. Every sin you've ever committed and every sin you will commit. This is the purification that he made for sin. And it's viewed as a completed work right now because it took place on the cross. And in fact, this is the pre-qualification to his next credential. The cross was the pre-qualification to Jesus taking his seat at the right hand of the Father. After making purification for sins, the text says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, we saw Jesus first as the greatest prophet, then just now as the ultimate or final priest, and now we begin to see him as king. Jesus is represented as king where he sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. When you read that verse, that's very familiar language to us. If you know the New Testament, Psalm 110 is being quoted there in verse 4, and that's the most oft-quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted 22 times, and it's going to come up again here in Hebrews in multiple places. But the text says he sat down after having made purification for sins. The idea is that when he had completed that work on the cross, it was so final that there was no work left to do as it pertained to accomplishing redemption. He was able to sit down because the job was done. It was finished. And when he sits, he's not sitting down in a recliner to veg out at the end of a long work day. He's sitting in a particular location. It's not a recliner, but it's a throne. He's seated right now at the the right hand of majesty, which which is to say he is a vice regent. He is co-equal with the father. The only way that you can sit right next to the king on his right hand is if you, in fact, have the same authority as the king. And so the majesty of the father is there, and the son now, as the second member of the trinity, is in the exact place of authority on the throne next to the father. He's seated, meaning mission accomplished for now. He's seated, meaning full jurisdiction and authority over all creation. And nothing falls outside of his throne. You know, we understand jurisdiction. We have city jurisdiction. We have county jurisdiction. We have state jurisdiction and federal. Right now, there's no worldwide jurisdiction that all the nations come under and submit to that authority. But Jesus has that authority. In fact, his authority is not just the things that you see, but according to Ephesians 1, it is even pertaining to the things that are unseen. There's nothing that is outside of this majesty. 
nothing that escapes it. Jesus is, in fact, the king above all kings. He is the Lord above all lords, and he is the supreme ruler from which every earthly power derives its authority. Think about how easily we get unsettled about being under an authority that we don't agree with. There is no authority except that which is derived from the authority of the Son, the one who's right now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Jesus is not sitting there doing nothing. He's very active, and we will see the ministry that he has uh, throughout Hebrews, both of of reigning sovereignly as well as making intercession in behalf of his people. Jesus has the best credentials as God's greatest spokesperson. He's the rightful heir of all things. He's the wonderful creator. He's the perfect explanation, the powerful sustainer. He's the atoning sacrifice, the only way that we could possibly be made right before God. He's the co-equal ruler with the Father. And finally, he is the superior name above angels. He's the superior name above angels. Now, this is, this is fun language here. This is something that you're going to get very used to in this letter. The other says in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And typically when we do a standard comparison, we're talking about a, a difference of degree. But here this particular uh, use of language is, is a comparison that is saying, really, Jesus is so much greater than the angels that you don't even need to spend any time thinking about how great the angels are. The idea is that it's a much better comparison that actually replaces the object that's being compared. Let me put it to you in this language. The angels in this construction may receive so little attention as to pass from consideration entirely. So that instead of saying more than, you could say rather than or exclusive of. See, Jesus is is not merely uh, just compared to the angels, but the idea is that he's so much better than the angels that you really don't even think about them. They would just go back behind the scenes. He's so much greater because every angel was created. Every angel was created for worship and the worship of Christ. But he gets a more excellent name. What does it mean for Jesus to get a more excellent name? It's not the name Jesus. It's not the name Savior. That's not the name that's being talked about. See, name in Scripture had to do with the reputation of the object. In fact, you remember when children of Israel were going into the promised land, they were concerned in Joshua chapter 7, verse 9. And he said, listen, if if you let us die, God, here's what's going to happen. Everyone in the land is going to hear about it. And then what will you do for your great name? What's going to happen to the reputation of Yahweh if we come in and we say, we're here on the Lord's behalf, we've been given this land, and then we get wiped off the face of the earth? It's it's going to look bad on you. It's going to dishonor your name. It's going to dishonor your reputation. That's what was in a name. 
It's the visible expression of his greatness. And most likely it would be the title Lord. We don't actually know, but it'll be the manifestation of him that he is above all else. And rather than just seeing it with eyes of faith, it will actually be displayed before all creation. Of course, he was humiliated and we will see soon in Hebrews that he was for a little while made lower than the angels. But listen to what the scriptures teach about the name that he gets. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He is high, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And the Lord Jesus, who will one day be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, yet now for a time has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And at this very moment, he is sitting on a throne with living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Amen. My friends, we are one sentence into this letter. And it's taken us an hour and a half to try and make our way through this one sentence because there is so much wonderful truth about our Lord that we just couldn't rush past it. My friends, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is very God of God. And this is how you are to think of him because this is how he really is. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we love to learn about Christ. We love to think about Christ. Lord, we love to meditate upon his person. Lord, what a great way to start a sermon for, or whoever it was that wrote this letter to a church of people who are becoming discouraged in their faith. Lord, the very first thing that he wants them to know is that Jesus Christ is in fact the preeminent one. He is the real deal. And Lord, I pray that we would in our daily lives see you for who you really are and worship you as you are revealed. Lord, to recognize that your supremacy has bearing for how we pray, Lord, how we work, how we love, how we serve. Lord, to realize that the culminating focus of our lives is not ultimately for ourselves and for our glory, Lord, but it's a coming day. And, and if we are in you, we rejoice in that, we delight in it, and it's what we long to see. So Lord, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us, Lord, that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask this in your name. Amen.